Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today is part two of my conversation with Dr. Thomas Jordan. Tom is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City. He is on the faculty of NYU's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis, and he is the author of Learn to Love, A Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. Some of the posts I write, eh, they have a little bit of a reaction, my, my community, so to speak, but some have big, and that one was a tsunami. And I read all the commentary. Some people scolded me. I don't like this part of the article. I made changes. I can learn. I made changes. It's in its third revision. It's an article about if you get to resignation, what I offer people in resignation is two things. If you believe that love relationships are learned, there's hope. Because if you become aware of learning, you can unlearn. Number two is a little funny formula that I've been staring at over the years in the love life area. If you give love, love comes back. It's like one of those balls on that paddle. It comes back. Now, the hard part is giving love when you don't feel like you have any. But we human beings, we have love even when we're not being given love. And that's a wonderful realization to have. When you have that realization and you're in resignation and you say to yourself, okay, I don't have the love that I always thought I would have. Let me go out into the world and give love. Let me find ways of giving love. Love comes back. It's very interesting when it happens. I pay close attention. And it doesn't always come back in the way you expect either, does it? Nope. No control. <laughs> love love's got a mind of its own yeah and look at the language we fall in love ah. <laughs> uh, it's not we go into love <laughs> we walked into love i walked into love with my wife i chose to love victoria i fell in love and you know when it was during a job interview I ran a clinic in Queens, New York, a psychiatric clinic, a young man. My wife showed up for a job. I fell in love with her. But it was so scary for me because I was too young, just out of graduate school. I wasn't ready to settle down. Six years passed <laughs> before we reconnected and got married shortly after. <laughs> How about that? Love in the back room somewhere. You know? I took love. I felt love. I put it in a box. I wrapped it with rope and a big knot, and I put it in the closet. That's actually perfect, because I was going to ask you, one of the things you said before was if we can learn something, then we can unlearn it. But we don't like unlearning stuff. We don't like letting stuff go. Right. <laughs> we don't no. unlearn it. We want to stay learned and then add more learned things to it. Yes. That formula 
if we learn, we can unlearn and relearn or learn something new comes from, well, the original was John Dewey, Columbia University back in the 20s. My analyst, Ben Wolstein, was a student of Dewey's work. Then he became an analyst and he passed that on to me. And that formula always stayed in my mind. He left us in 1998, but in 1999, I wrote the book and that formula was a big part of it because my analyst, Ben Wolstein, he understood love. He was, uh, he never really wrote about it, but he understood it. And we spoke about it from time to time and I'll work together. So that formula is a very powerful formula because the unlearning, you're right. People don't like to unlearn, but the motivation to do any of this, Karen, is love. Love is a very powerful motivator. In fact, I'm going to go on the air and make the announcement that me, Dr. Thomas Jordan, for the world to know, love is the most powerful motivator there is. And there are plenty of people that will argue with me. Oh, money's more important. Power is more important. I would say to them, Power and money is more important because love is a problem. Ooh, I'm going to get a lot of flack for that. Love that. Yes. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Because I kind of, we've just had an election over here. So we had the usual pre-election where everybody's, it's like, I can't think of a better word, where everybody's putting everybody else down. There's kind of no generosity. There's no love because generosity comes from love. You've got to feel secure in you. <laughs> I just said something really debatable there. <laughs> in my opinion, generosity seems to come from a space of love. If there's no love there, there's no generosity. Yep, yep. And, you know, <clears throat> we could take this another step into these all these controversial areas. <laughs> love is healing. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. People in the medical profession have lots of questions about that statement. People in the psychoanalytic profession have a lot of questions about that statement. Pros and cons. What I've seen, love heals. And there was a fellow 2000 years ago who believed in that. He had these these prescriptions. Love your God. Love your neighbor. We didn't welcome him no <laughs> don't want to do that <laughs> there'll be no lovers <laughs> no, no, well i love him but i'm not gonna love them over there <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> you better cut out the last part of this i'm <laughs> thinking <laughs> i am gonna get so much flack from that statement oh, but, oh well but it was an observation, for, and it was my personal thing. But let's go back to kind of where I started going before. If, you know, we look at disappointing love life, but we look at it in a romantic, only in a romantic situation, but you're talking about love as being, or love relationships as being everything, all our relationships. So how do we know then that we have a disappointing love life if it's because like, like I say, you got that focus there on, on romantic, the rest of our lives, how do we know if it's disappointing? What is disappointing? Um, I offer love life consultations by phone now because of the pandemic. And if someone asks me for a consultation, 
That's the first question I ask myself. Does this person have a disappointing love life? The way I identify it is repetition is usually the first thing that shows up. Repetition and a general feeling of unhappiness about one's love life. It's not satisfying. Uh, There are multiple breakups, multiple disappointments. I'll see patterns of I worked with one person with multiple divorces, multiple relationships with the same kind of people. That disappointment is easy to diagnose because it accompanies a generalized feeling of unhappiness with one's love life. And when you get people to talk about their love life, they'll sound disappointed. They'll talk about it as, you know, something's wrong with this. I mean, I didn't expect this relationship to end the way it did or This relationship was disappointing in a way that I didn't expect. So disappointment's not that hard to find when you have someone. And just if someone asks me, I need a love life consultation, doctor. There's a 99% chance there's disappointment there. I mean, just because they're asking for something that's probably asking for it because their love life is disappointing. Usually people don't come to see me and talk about their love lives if they're not disappointed. <laughs> That's a really good so, point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I was talking with a colleague the other day. I said, you know, how come nobody comes to see us when they're happy? <laughs> it could create a complex, you know. Like, <laughs> it's like nobody walks in, doctor, my life is wonderful. Can we meet regularly? Uh, not yet. I'm waiting. <laughs> that person. <laughs> so what, what do you think is the most important thing we need to look at? Because I'm just looking at the time. And <laughs> I could, I'm happy to carry on for another hour. We are having a great time. What do you think would be the most important thing people need to look at to analyze where they're at, to, to really understand where they're at? Yeah. In the book, I talk about the disappointing love life as a condition. Condition meaning it's something that is showing up in multiple forms in one's love life. Love life being the area of a person's life involving relationships that have the emotion of love in them. So I'm I'm trying to focus people on the idea that if you have a disappointing love life, meaning relationships aren't the, your love relationships aren't the way you were expecting they would be. They didn't last long enough, or they were painful each time they ended, or they have the same pattern over and over again, which you know is unhealthy, but it's so familiar, you're recreating it with all kinds of irrational hope or uh, thinking you can change the person or And these things come together to suggest that it's just not what you're looking for. You're not happy with it. And there's true pain involved in a disappointing love life. Let's be honest and open about that. Love life issues create pain, emotional pain. People feel loss. Uh, These uh, unhealthy relationship experiences I outlined, abuse, abandonment, you know, control, self-centeredness. These are things when they're replicated in the adult love life, they're they're painful. They cause hurt. Hurt is the feeling that accompanies the disappointing love life. 
And people do various things to cope with that feeling. They can defend against it, but they know that it's there and they're unhappy with the fact that their love life has not progressed in depth, perhaps. When love is healthy, it matures, thrives. Love is like a a plant. You provide the right conditions for it, it grows. Beautiful flowers show up. Leaves, it's green, it's healthy. Um, We have to take care of love, keep it going. It's best taken care of by two people. They grow it together, two gardeners. And that working together creates this beautiful plant. And the plant can last for a lifetime. Now, people have a lot of opinions about love. You know, are you saying that the only love that's really healthy is... My observation is that when it's green with flowers... It's healthy. My love for my wife is not the same love I had when I was 41 and got married. I'm 69 now. Uh, The love I have for her now is matured. It'll be different when I'm 85. Victoria's my best friend. I love her, and she's my best friend. That friendship matured in our love relationship. It added some very interesting qualities, honesty, vulnerability, communication about hurt, never easy, but essential. That's actually where I was going to go with it because somebody, another guest said that the fastest growing divorce rate is in people aged 55 and over. Um, You know, as people hit midlife or as the kids leave home or whatever and they go hang on this relationship now isn't what I'm not getting what I want out of it you know and and just thinking about everything that you've said it's those disappointments over the years adding up but also if the relationship hasn't changed with you or the two of you have changed in different ways how do you first of all look at that and say okay can this be any better? And if you want it to be any better, figure out whether you want it to be any better. But if you want it to be any any better and create a good relationship, how do you go about doing that? Well, <clears throat> I, I would answer your question by bringing the phrase working on your love life back. Uh, we talked about that. You not only work on your love life when you're looking for love, you work on your love life when you found love. I think we forget about that bit, don't we? <laughs> yeah, right, that's done too. Oh, I got, I got married. I don't have to work on love anymore. <laughs> what we oh, do? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> if you stop working on love that you found, there's a high probability it will wither. Wither is slow death. We got kids. I don't necessarily want to be a 50-year-old lounge lizard, so I'll hang out with her a little longer. But my mind is to get out. I want to be free. I haven't worked on my marriage for years. I'm waiting for my kids to go to college. Two people can sit together and say, we got to do something about our marriage. Okay. What do you want to do? Work on it. 
Dr. Ruth had a video. I don't think she's with us anymore. She had a video and she used to run these love life oriented treatments with couples. And there was one couple, I never forget. She said, she said, okay, here's your prescription. I want you, she pointed at the, the woman, to go to a bar, sit there, have a couple of drinks, talk to men around you. You are going to go to the bar in an hour and pick her up. <laughs> Take her home, have romantic sex, and rekindle your sex life. <laughs> and that's what they did. She went to the bar. There were all kinds of single men talking to her. And he, the husband shows up, macho, you know. <laughs> Excuse me, guys. <laughs> You're coming with me. <laughs> oh, boy. I guess Dr. Ruth thought that that would open up some uh, possibilities. Maybe it did. But, <laughs> but the point is, Something new happened. Couples do say to me, and I, I don't, my wife does the couples work these days. I, I, I prefer the individual work in our group practice, little variation. But I think that in couples work, marital therapy, at least the way I used to do it, communication is a fundamental issue. Communication is what, as a therapist, a marital therapist, couple therapist, you want to develop that. Because oftentimes when couples, maybe all the time, when couples have problems, the communication is broken down. So getting that going, building a bridge, and sometimes it's through the therapist, you know, she talks to the therapist, he talks to the therapist, and eventually they talk to each other in ways where they can understand what they need and what's happened to their relationship and how to rekindle, remember why they fell in love and so on, to get it living again, thriving again. So that's the work. Talking about your hurt with someone who's hurt you is never easy for anybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a marital therapist. Going home and talking to your wife or husband about the hurt you feel, you're down in the trenches like everybody else. Because the heart is on another level. If we go back to what you were saying about love and about all the different relationships, like I'm just thinking here, you know, we we go, oh, yeah, I've, I attract these abusive relationships. I attract people who abandon me. But it's quite often, well, it's, well, what you're saying is it's not just in our romantic relationships. We'll attract those kind of things in everything else. So we can actually look for clues in all our other relationships, uh, can I, we? Well, no, no, I would, I, would, uh, I would amend that. I'm focused on the love relationship. Other relationships, I wouldn't generalize it to them. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in how the replications take place in relationships where the experience of love is taking place. So I would, I would focus it just there. So is that, um, in, but is that, can that be in a friendship or a relationship with I relatives? think love can or? occur in a friendship. I right. do. Uh, I have, I have patients, people I work with where the patterns can show up, especially in close relationships with friends, because I do believe love is a, love is a feeling that can show up in friendships. You know, it's it's definitely 
not restricted to romance. So in that sense, I, I, I see what you're saying. If you want to generalize it there, but I'm a little bit careful about that. I, I'm trying to, <laughs> I don't want to get into too much trouble. Yeah. I want to, I'm like, all right, I'll take the heat with love relationships. <laughs> all relationships. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> come back, come back. <laughs> how, how do you, oh, blimey, I've just forgotten what. How do you unlearn things? So it's okay identifying something, but how do you then go on and unlearn it? Uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the unlearning method. Uh, the identification is bringing it to consciousness, which permits a person to begin. I like to think of it as a study. To work on your love life involves a certain amount of study, self-study. You're going to be studying your own love life. You're going to become curious about it, open to it, a bit of self-knowledge specific to this area of your life. So that's what stage one does. The uh, step one, the identifying your psychological love life. You become interested in that self-study of that particular area of your life. So there's a bit of empowerment that comes as a consequence of that. You're, you're flexing your conscious muscles because you're going to use that empowerment to do step two and three. Step two is the understanding that what you've identified has unhealthy aspects to it that are being repeated and replicated and recreated in your love life. Consequence, multiple disappointment. All the things we talked about, patterns showing up over and over again. So in step two, you realize parts are unhealthy and you're going to challenge them for the purpose of disrupting what's unconsciously dominating your love life experience. Human beings can do that. I want to quit smoking. Let me find a method to do that. Let me put a patch. Let me go see a hypnotist. Let me use willpower. Um, I can begin to challenge myself. People have even said to me, oh, I wanted to walk in that bar, but I didn't. I went home. I wanted that cigarette so bad. It smelled so good, but I didn't. I went back to work. Whatever it is, we have the capacity to divide ourselves up for a therapeutic confrontation with what's unhealthy inside. Now, we could get support from a therapist to do that and a counselor. Uh, we could do it on our own. Uh, read Tom Jordan's book. <laughs> That's a plug, right? Sorry. <laughs> um, look, but, I agree with that one. <laughs> uh, we, can, we can mess with it. Automatic loops of learning like to be left alone. They like to operate in the dark, in the closet, without any fanfare, nice and secret. They dominate. The unconscious oh. likes to work like that. Oh, I'm just, yeah, something else. Because quite often we're also ashamed of those things, aren't we? So it doesn't, that we, we well, want to. Right. Absolutely. Oh. We can hide them. Yeah. Absolutely. Five Which five you five. just put your finger on one of the defenses. Now, a shame could be a creating avoidance or distance or conflict. Shame is one of those toxic feelings that can lead, commonly it leads to avoidance. 
I'm ashamed, I'm going to hide this. Um, so that's, that's a very prominent, unhealthy defense that people often use to cope with the unhappiness that's occurring as a consequence of multiple disappointments. So, but the challenge, the challenge is there. Disrupt this automatic process, ask questions about it. Uh, people journal sometimes. That's a powerful tool. Oh, boy, this guy that I have a date with tomorrow, he might be like the last guy. What am I looking for? If I see, okay, I'll give you an interesting patient says to me, doctor, I have problems with control. I find controlling men over and over and over again. So we put that on the treatment plan. We work on control. She identifies the pattern, where it came from, and she's also studied it a bit. She's ready to challenge it. She's ready to find it. So she's got a date. Handsome guy, plenty of money, nice car, beautiful restaurant, month of July. New York City, sitting at this white linen, beautiful table, telling each other stories. She interrupts him. Excuse me, so-and-so. I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. What does he say? No, 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 no. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Come on. I'm almost done. When she told me that story, I went, what? This man stopped you from going to the bathroom? You don't do that to anybody. Control can be subtle, sneaky, but it's a red flag speaking to the familiar. I'm one of those guys who's going to intrude into what you're doing and set up parameters, which may not be in your best interest. So she was able to talk about that and realize, okay, this is one of those people that I have to stay away from. Insecure partners who prefer control instead of dealing with the insecurity that they're really struggling with, because that's how the control gets generated. So stage two is identifying and challenging. No, the challenge is I'm not going to date that guy again. I'm going to find someone who's not controlling. I'm going to find someone who's closer to stage three. Stage three, step three in the unlearning process, unlearning method is doing the opposite. What's the opposite of control? Like freedom. Yeah. Freedom. Yeah. If I'm on a date, and I feel like the guy's relaxed, free, comfortable. I'm going to feel that. You know what's interesting about stage three, step three? A number of people have said this to me. I'm uncomfortable with that. Wait a minute. You're uncomfortable with control. You don't want that anymore. But you're uncomfortable with freedom? Yes. What is a free man? What is a, uh, I, I grew up with abandonment, a parent left, I find abandoning partners. Okay, let's talk about the emotionally available man. 
I'm sorry, you're making a face. What is an emotionally available man? <laughs> that makes me anxious. Why? I don't know it. It's unfamiliar. So in step three, we're making the unfamiliar familiar. We're correcting something. If you have it in your mind, okay, what is the correction to my abandonment pattern that I learned growing up and I'm replicating in a disappointing, with disappointing consequences? What's the opposite of that? I have to find a person who can truly commit. I might not know what that's like. I might be anxious about it. How do I handle a man who's committed? <laughs> Notice, <laughs> in the first instance, <laughs> the unconscious speaks. In the first instance, in the first instance, I already know how to do that. <laughs> in the second one, that's what I have to learn. <laughs> that's where the extending circumstances happen. That's where the new knowledge comes in. The new learning comes in. And I like the opposite. I love that word, the opposite, the opposite. The, the correction that we need, oftentimes, it keeps coming back to the opposite. What's the opposite of dishonesty? Honesty. I need a corrective experience of honesty so I can learn what that's like, so I'll know its importance. Honesty and love hang out together. They're best friends. If you're not honest, I don't know who you are. If you're an honest person, especially about vulnerabilities, I can love that. But you have to take the risk to be honest. And that's a wonderful direction to take your love life in. And if I have a patient who gets to step three and he or she has honesty in his or her mind, I'm out there in the dating world looking for honesty. That's good. I was in the dating world looking for independence, freedom, and intimacy. Intimacy, exchange. You just don't talk about you. I just don't talk about me in a self-centered way. I exchange. I'm mutual. I'm intimate. When I was out in the world looking for that, Victoria showed up, called me to refer a patient. Don't ask me to explain that. Vicky, <laughs> come in here. I want you to answer this question. Wouldn't that be funny if she did? I mean, great. Fabulous. <laughs> Can I ask you, does the, because opposite makes sense, because does that allow you to hang on to the familiar of what you don't want as a, so it gives you a place to stand to, uh, to see the opposite. Do you know what I'm saying? So uh, not if, really. Uh, what are you because saying? you're so familiar with what you don't want. Okay, I don't want dishonesty. I don't want control. I don't want neediness. So I'm familiar with those things. So can I use those to see what it is I do want? I want freedom and yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. You were just using the word familiar like that. So I had to understand that. Yeah. Once you've identified in step one, that's the power of step one, to identify what the psychological love life contains. Once you've identified what relationship experiences have come into your psychological love life, you're really ahead of the game. You're, you're in a place where you can ask a bunch of questions. Okay, 
what do I have to interfere with? I have to interfere with what I usually look for. I have to interfere with, with what I usually find. I've, I can identify it. I can see it. I've got consciousness. I have awareness. That's a powerful beginning. And now I can mess with it. I can tell myself, do you want that? I don't want that. I don't like needy people to fall in love with. They're, they're too much work. They need therapy. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to be their mommy or daddy. Take care of them. They, we has to, it has to be mutual. I want someone who's further along, who's gotten an understanding of independence, and, and they're more developed, perhaps, or someone who's not going to control me out of insecurity, or someone who can be intimate. When I have a date with them, I feel like they're interested in who I am. They've asked me questions about myself. I've asked them questions about themselves. It's a mutual thing. I feel like when I leave the dinner table, I've gotten to know you and you've gotten to know me. Relationship, that's a foundation for love to grow in. Love loves relationship. Love is like a seed. Once it hits healthy relationship, it proliferates. It begins to grow. So that once you've identified it, you can interfere with what you don't want and look for what you want. Now, it's not like, okay, I want independence. I'm going to find it. A little bit harder than that. Let's be realistic. You know what's funny? All these dependent women come looking for you. <laughs> Holy smokes. All the dishonest men come looking for you. <laughs> oh, no. I got to say no, 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 no. That one. If I stay in it, keep a hopefulness alive, live my life, do my life best I can, but I have this in mind. I'm looking for something. When I transform with the help of my analyst, these ideas we're talking about, I was young. I was doing the nightlife of Manhattan. I had a lot of play friends. Play friends. Play. Everything's play with play friends. Never serious. No relationships. Nightclubs. Drinking. Smoking back then. I got sick of it. I don't want this. Friends that I had that I recognized in the club. I stopped going. Let me do something better. Let me make some real friends. Let me stop hanging out in that play world. That's what I did. I wanted a relationship. I started feeling this feeling. I wanted a companion. Five years before, I'd have said, what? Not me. I'm too young for that. Why it happened at 40, 39? Not sure. I was sick of it. Maybe it's because my analyst pointed out I was using my mother as a template. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Be truthful, Tom. Okay. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I took a break. The insight stayed in my head like a hot rock, and I realized, no, no, I got to do better than this. So that's how it occurred. And, and it, you know, it took a couple of years of looking around. I changed, the, you know, where I was looking and the people I was looking at. And I went through something where if I got, if I hung around with old friends, you know, I would look at people differently. 
are you someone who might be into a relationship? No. Yes, maybe. Something changes. And with that new mind, interesting things. Now, you could say, is the mystery back again? In other words, if you change what you believe, if you change how you behave, if you change how you feel, does that mean you have a different kind of experience or one finds you? I'm going to have to add that to the mystery pile. Victoria is, called me up. Yeah, uh, that was just to refer a patient. And I said, I said, I hadn't seen her for a while. I said, Hi, how are you? She said, If you want to talk to me personally, call me tonight. How did she know I was in a better place to move forward? Mind does not just stay in your head, it travels. It is lovely. I would love to talk to your wife about that. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. (laughs) That is the perfect place to to finish up. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been an absolute joy. Same here, Karen. I actually thought when we started talking, I thought this is going to end up being two episodes. (laughs) 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 We're having too much fun. (laughs) Well, the, the, the spontaneity of it permits associations and thoughts and the creative part to come to the forefront so that's good that's when it's best oh thank you i appreciate that and uh, before we go i just need to say all of the links to tom's books and his practice and everything they are on the website and they will have been on the bottom of the the video as well so make sure you follow them up because i really can recommend that book it was just so eye-opening it was great But it's a different way of looking at things, and that's what is valuable about it. It is different. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.